It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. You got a pink flamingo shirt on. You're ready to rock and roll. Where are you going? I'm going to Florida. Why are you going to Florida? First time I've ever been to Florida, just for the weekend. Really? Yeah. Now, now, why uh, Florida for the weekend? Because normally you go down there, you go to Disneyland, Epcot Probably Center. Do, yeah, all that and, stuff. Yeah. We are soccer fanatics at Enthusiasts. my house. Yeah, for sure. And so um, my son Jake graduated from high school almost two years ago, mm-hmm. but it was COVID and I wanted to take him to do something fun, but COVID kind of got in the way and he's a huge Arsenal soccer fan, the, the, the English soccer club, Arsenal and Chelsea, another soccer club from, from London mm-hmm. are playing in the summer league, which is sort of, it, it's, there, it's a cup. It's kind of a minor deal, but they usually come and play in the United States. So we're going to get up tomorrow, fly out there, watch them play on Saturday, just nerd out about soccer all day and then come home on Sunday. The only thing I know about soccer, I learned from Ted Lasso. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to learn it. Uh, you know what? I, I love re- that show. It, that guy is the eternal optimist. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? You yeah, look if, at you want, him. if you want a character in a movie to see what a real optimist is like, he's a perfect example. And, and, and the thing is, is it doesn't always go his way, but he right. finds the, the silver lining, turns how to spin it, and uh, you can see that even an optimist has bad days. Yeah. The, the, actually, that's a great example of optimism doesn't mean things are always going to be perfect, but when things aren't going well, you find a way around them or through them or over them. Yeah, and so I really love Ted Lasso. Yeah, so that's great. If, if if you haven't seen it yet, go give it a, a shot. It's on Apple TV, I believe. I think so. I think there's even a new season coming out. I, I like it. Hey, you know, speaking of you know new seasons and shows, and I was thinking about this on the drive down. Um, everybody's got a story, and you know when you think about it, and you know a lot of times people come on here and they tell their stories, and usually with the stories on a podcast about recovery, there's a lot of fireworks, there's a lot of drama, mm-hmm. there's a lot of trauma, and and, and there's a lot of. Uh, well, we talk about people's rock bottoms a lot, and uh-huh. you and I have sort of. Uh, mused over the fact that we'll sit and look at each other and think, well, that must be the rock bottom. And then their story keeps going and there's another rock bottom, you know? And so like, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, like you said, drama that happens usually. And we live in a salacious society. And when I say that, I mean that uh, we like a train wreck. We like to see things go boom. Well, uh, what, what was the TV show? Uh, Intervention. Intervention. You know, I think that's all that show was pretty much about, unfortunately, was just people tuned in to see the train wreck. And it's funny you bring up the show Intervention because our guest today's name is Shane. We're going to talk to her in just a second. But she watches that show with her 10-year-old daughter. Now, Shay's been sober for two years. Mm. And I told her I used to watch that show like I was doing homework in <laughs> case my family was ever going to pull an intervention on me. And I was like, uh-uh. If there are a lot of cars outside my house when I get home late at night, what do I do? Why am I meeting you in this motel in the banquet room <laughs> at 10 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday? Right. No, I know what's going on behind those doors, and I'm not going to be a part of it. Yeah. But I... We 
used to watch that, and I used to watch the beginning, and I used to watch the end, and I never watched the middle because mm. that's when it got too real. And I was talking with our guest, and she goes, "Because you could relate, huh?" And I was yeah. like, "Yeah, kind of." Too raw. I I mean, I could see the addict in their active addiction and just see what what a nightmare and a mess that situation they're in, but I also could see the hurt in the loved one's eyes. Mm. And that more than... That was probably too much, right? It was, because I could see that they just wanted the best for this person. And they wanted to help in any way they can. And they had tried everything they had. And so they came to this intervention. And, And so I would watch the beginning... I would skip the middle and I'd watch the end and I'd watch the end where they would finally almost 90% of the time talk this person into going to rehab Mm -hmm. and then the credits would roll and then about 30 seconds in the credit, they would pull up a black screen and they would tell you where that person is currently doing it. Like he spent 15 days in rehab is now back using or this person has been sober for two years. And it was very disheartening to see that all that they went through, that this person would relapse, you know, within oh, 10 that, days. That was that happens a lot on that. Yeah. And, and, and now being in recovery for four years plus, I know that relapse is part of the game. Um, but what I what I wanted to kind of talk about is there's a lot of people out there who are battling addiction, who aren't getting DUIs, who aren't losing their jobs, right. who aren't losing their families but are still battling the same disease of addiction. And it's just not without all the fanfare. Well, sometimes the term functional gets thrown around, and yeah. you and I aren't real big fans of that. No. But I think that's what people mean when they say they're sort of functioning, meaning they're, they haven't had you know all these crazy experiences, but every day is a battle. Every day is kind of misery. And addiction is probably one of the most lonely diseases out there. Yeah. Uh, And the fact that you isolate yourself from your loved ones because you don't want to hear the pain in their voice. You don't want to see the disappointment in their eyes. And you want to be in complete denial that you don't have a problem. So if nobody can tell you what a train wreck you are, you must not be a train wreck. So you can put it together for four to eight hours, depending on what your job is, and then come back and bury yourself into whatever you're into. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. but what I'm saying is that I know there's a lot of people and I know because they reach out to me on Instagram and Facebook who say, because of this podcast, I've reevaluated my life and I've looked deeper and realized that I was in active addiction. Now it wasn't as bad as yours. You didn't, I didn't have my mugshot all over TV and websites and, mm-hmm. and, and all that. People weren't talking about it for a while, um, but I was an act, I was an addict. And yeah. so I wanted to people to know that are out there that are listening to this because people go, who listens to your podcast? I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's a lot of people in active addiction. I don't, I don't, I don't think somebody is shooting heroin and listening to our podcast. I mean, there might be some, but I don't think so. Yeah. But people in their worst addiction state are probably not listening to this, but I think it's a lot like what you were doing with, uh, uh, intervention, the TV show. It's sort of people who are contemplating mm-hmm. or in, they're in pre-contemplation or contemplation. We've talked about those stages of behavior change. Yeah. People who are sort of like thinking, do I have a problem? Should I change things? And a huge percentage of our audience happen to be f- uh, friends and loved ones of people who are in active addiction. Just trying to figure out how to deal with the situation that they've been put into. Right. Because we found out that addiction is a family disease. Mm-hmm. I used to tell my parents, my ex-wife, my kids all the time. I was like, what do you care? I'm not making you drink. It's not your problem. It's not your problem. And to be a fact, it's not even a problem for me. The problem is yours. You're the problem. Yeah. Just let me be me. And yeah. now I know how selfish 
that was and what a problem it was for my ex-wife, for my parents, for my family, for my work, for everybody who's associated with me because I was a hurricane. I was a tornado. I was, I, I was a wrecking ball. I was a one-man wrecking ball, and I did a lot of damage. Yeah, and I think uh, you could look at that two ways, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, the way you're looking at it right now is the damage that gets done. A different way to spin it, if you're somebody who's in that state right now, mm-hmm. might be, I have such great connections with people that when I am a wrecking ball, I hurt them. That's how close they are to me. I'm that close with people. I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed, however you want to think of it, to have that those deep connections in my life. I should take better care of them. Yeah. Right? So if you, if you flip it around the other way, now all of a sudden you're motivated to take care of those relationships instead of being resentful that people are hurt by your behavior. I've said it a ton that I was very blessed with good family and friends and coworkers who cheered me on and championed me to get, become the better version of myself. And that's a talent for you. I, you got to go do some fun stuff with some friends of mine earlier this week where you played in a golf tournament. And I've gotten twice feedback now from them just in a few days about how much they loved meeting you and spending time with you and had fun with you. And that's Casey Scott. Like everywhere you go, you make great connections with people. Well, And I had a blast and I was honored to be a part of it. And I hope they'll have me back next year. But there are a lot of people out there that are battling this disease in isolation and alone. And for for that for those people, let us be your family. You reach out to us on Facebook. Reach us out on Instagram. If we can point you in the right direction, if we can give you advice, if we can be the only voice that you hear today that you matter, that you count, and that you can beat this, that recovery is possible, let us be that tool for you. And uh, one thing you can do if you're wondering about different programs and places to go, we've been able to highlight a lot of great places on this show, a lot of different types of recovery programs, uh, and people come in and talk about their experience with them, or some of, you know, recently we've had people come on who run different recovery programs. So this can be a resource if you're wondering what would that program be like. Chances are we've had somebody from that program on this show. But maybe you listen to the podcast the way I watched Intervention and you watch it. The good part. <laughs> so I'm going to just tell you how it is. I'll yeah. give you the breakdown. And this is about as much um, planning we do for each show. Uh, Dr. Matt and myself, we talk for 10 minutes. We take a break. We introduce you to the guest. We go through their story. And at the very end of every podcast, we like to highlight what that person is doing in recovery, whether it be uh, – Instagram page, uh, working at a recovery center, a therapist, or, or whatever they're so many doing different things. to give back. Yeah. So if anything, go back and listen to our past guests and fast forward it to the very end. I'd love it if you listen to the whole thing. Yeah. But go back and listen to the last 10 minutes of every episode and find out what those people did it's to get stuff. themselves into recovery and yeah. how they're giving back. Yeah, I think that's why I usually leave here in a really good mood. Yeah. Because we end on the positives. This show is like a shot of vitamin B12. Yeah. Right in the glute. Yeah. Yep. I love it. I love it too, man. Uh, You've got a challenge for everybody out there. So I was thinking about this the other day. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe Dr. Matt needs to bring something better and more new to the show. I don't know how you could bring better, more, or new to the show. Well, we're going to try it right now. Okay. You can let me know. Yeah. I was thinking we have such a great um, social media it's mostly Facebook, but we have a lot of people that like to interact with us on on social media. Mm-hmm. They're obviously listening to the show. And so I thought, you know what? Sometimes we just need a challenge in life. Sometimes we just need somebody to challenge us to make a change, to, to 
read a book, whatever it happens to be. Sure. And, and eat healthier. Eat healthier, whatever it is. And that just, just somebody who cares giving us a challenge. Sometimes we take it up. And I like to think, so I do a lot of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy in my practice. CBT. CBT, yes. And CBT is a, is a type of therapy that's based in training or retraining. It's, it's very active. It's sort of like going to the gym. I use that analogy a lot. And so I like to, instead of telling people, uh, do this thing for the rest of your life, which is an overwhelming thing to hear. I like to just give people challenges. I usually call them experiments and say, between now and our next visit, why don't you try this? Practice it every day or twice a day or whatever it is. Come back, give me feedback. If it doesn't work, we won't keep doing it, obviously. If it does work or only works partially, we'll, we'll tweak it and adapt it, and it might become a new healthy part of your life. So that's the challenge. We're going to start giving uh, periodic challenges here on the show. I love it. Just simple things that a person could try between now and their next visit with us. Mm-hmm. And they can uh, message us on Facebook and let us know how it went. So today's challenge is this. Right. If you are somebody who is just a sort of a casual social drinker, okay, let's say you... Nobody, we call them normies. Normies, yes, yeah. the, the normies. Uh, somebody who might just show up to a party or to a dinner and have a drink with their friends. I'm going to challenge you to exercise a little extra control, and the next time you're out and you're, out, you're in a situation where you might have a social drink, turn it down and have water instead. Mm. and pay attention to what that experience is like. Is it different? Is it the same? Is it worse? Is it better? Like having dinner, going out, being with friends. We have a, a, a extended weekend coming up, the holiday weekend, that kind of, well, it'll be passed by the time people hear this, but, you know, barbecues, family events, whatever it happens to be. And if, if that's a time you normally grab a drink of some kind, turn it down and have some water. Don't have soda. That's horrible for you but have some water or something like that and then you know what i'd love to hear your feedback i think other people would love to hear your feedback uh, on what that was like was it sort of like eh or was it interesting to you i'm gonna add a little something to that okay let me know what people's responses were when you turned down a drink i want to see what that is because i know in my own experience that people would be like hey do you want a drink i'm gonna be like no i'm good they're like why Hmm? what's wrong with you you okay okay? yeah Yeah. huh (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah. Let's that's hear very what, uncharacteristic. Like if you show up to you know your your friend friend night dinner night going out and and you turn down the wine or whatever, it'd be interesting to hear what people say. I love it. Hey, well, so do what Doctor Matt said. Added a comment on Facebook. We'll put a post up there so we know you know what to do. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Our guest today is Shay Mitchell. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Uh, Shay Mitchell is your sober name. Yes, Shay Sober. Yep. Yeah, Shay Sober. And uh, your We're alcoholic gonna... name was? Hip Hip Sheree. <laughs> Which I love, and we're going to find out more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, 
the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Shay Mitchell. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm so excited that you're you're here because I found out about Shay from your Instagram. Uh, you celebrate sobriety and uh, you do some wonderful things on there. The thing I love about your Instagram the most is how raw and real you are. You don't pull punches. Thanks. <laughs> and now, was that on purpose? Is, does that help you in your recovery? Yeah. Uh, tell me why. You know, it does because once I got honest about being an alcoholic, I decided I wanted to be honest about everything because that's what feels good now. You were telling me that uh, you've been married for how many years now? Oh my gosh, been married for, it'll be 13 years this this November. And you said your husband now watches your Instagram and (laughs) learns things about your addiction that in 13 years of marriage, he didn't know. Right. I hid a lot. Of stuff while I was drinking, how much I was drinking, when I was drinking, all of it. And we're going to get to all that in just a second. Where does the story of Shay begin? All right. Well, born and raised in Utah. I'm the oldest of four. Um, born into the, the culture, the Mormon culture. So raised in you know the conservative religious household. We went to church every Sunday and... What was kind of weird for me about that was I also grew up with an addict father. So my father um, was addicted to to all sorts of things, but um, also preached, don't do that. You know, a little bit more of do as I say, not as I do. So we'd go to church on Sundays, be, be taught, you know, word of wisdom, not to drink alcohol, those kinds of things. But then I would see him and my mom do that on the weekends, throw poker parties, you know, have tequila out, have fun doing that. Um, So that was confusing for me as a young child um, because I saw them having fun doing that and not really having that much fun when they were at church. (laughs) You know, you just kind of have this observation as a kid, like what looks enjoyable. Um, So I kind of always knew that I wanted to drink from a really young age seeing that. My mom stopped drinking when I was about 11 just by choice. She didn't really have um, an addiction to alcohol like I do, but that's neither here here nor there. It's just um, a little bit a part of my story. I'm going to stop you there for a second, Dr. Matt. How confusing is that? Oh, my gosh. For a young child. I'm I'm sitting over here just saying there's so much I could say about that. (laughs) Well, I want you to say something. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm curious to get back to your experience with this, but the reality is like, as a child, you 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 don't have your own real internal voice. This is the way I kind of like to say it. It's it, it, we learn our internal voice from the external voices around us. So growing up, our parents are usually the most influential people, and so when your parents say something, you take it very seriously. And you, you know you may change your mind about it. Probably do later on when you grow up. But when you're a kid, you know under. Teen, you know, the preteen years, all of that, everything mom and dad says and does really is on your mind. So when parents do really, let's just say it, hypocritical things, <laughs> uh, confusing things, it does leave a child very, very confused and very, you're very influenced by things that look 
like they're fun. So when you were mentioning like um, being at church, um, I, I remember seeing a meme once about uh, somebody like staring at a wall in there. That's like that's what it's like for a kid at church because they're so small and they're just sitting there and their feet don't touch the ground and they're staring. It's it's not it, it can be. Uh, a very stifling time. I remember not wanting to wear my tie and socks and all that kind of stuff, right? And so church didn't sound fun, but mom and dad are throwing these fun parties, which uh, part of the fun is alcohol, which we we're taught we shouldn't do at church. So that's very confusing for a kid. My question is, did you ever bring that up? Did you ever mention, because sometimes kids are, you know, when you get a little bit older, you're like, oh, I don't want to put dad on the spot and you know make you know put you know make him upset but when you're a kid you're just kind of like hey what's up with this did you ever bring it up did you ever talk to your parents about it ask about it you know i didn't i grew up in a household like i said where it was do as i say not as i do and mm. that was actually said like do as i say not as i do don't ask questions i've oh, told you to do okay. this so, so do shut, what i say they shut that down yeah, there so wasn't I just a conversation didn't feel, i didn't feel safe maybe to ask without yeah thinking I might be yelled at or asked, why am I even asking? It's none of my business, maybe, Mm. is how I felt. I was just really always observant. But that's a problem that I have with uh, the alcohol, the movies, the TVs, and all of that. You know what I mean? Because you watch alcohol ads. You watch uh, alcohol play Remember like Budweiser commercials from the 80s and 90s. Everybody's having a great time. And everybody's having a good time. And when we're we're talking to our kids, it's bad. It's bad. But on this other hand, everybody's showing what fun it is. And nobody's telling these kids, hey, look. Alcohol does make things fun. It does. It, it, for a minute. For a minute. Mm-hmm. It right. does lower air inhibition. They showed the end of the party in the yeah, commercial. But, <laughs> yeah, they don't ever really do that. Yeah. But I mean, that's what I'm saying is. And so I think a lot of times when kids are in their curiosity stage, you know, in you know, junior high, high school, and, and, and they, and they want to know what it is, yeah. and their whole life they've been told, this is horrible. This is bad. Don't do that. And the first time they try it, and we've had people on the podcast say that, they go, it wasn't bad. It wasn't horrible. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And so then they go, what else have you been lying to me about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. You yeah. know, it, it's like, you know, and so if we don't have these honest, genuine conversations with the kids, rather than doing what Shay's parents did, just no, because I said so. Well, I also think about your parents. I mean, that that's a lot of um, stuff going on for mom and dad. Like if... They must have felt some internal distress about like, on the one hand, I want to be a person who can cut loose and have a party and drink and, and, you know, all that, by the way, gamblings, you're not supposed to do that one either. So we got, (laughs) we got the tequila, we got the poker out, we got all that stuff. On the other hand, they must have felt some sort of drive or obligation to do the church part and, and take you guys as kids to church. Do you feel like that was some internal stress uh, for your parents? As a parent now and looking back, I can absolutely see that, you know, they were raised a certain way. And so you only know what you know. And so they were just handing that down to us kids because it seemed, you know, that seemed to work for them. But also in their lives, they had, you know, needs to let loose. And that's the alcohol worked for them for that. Sometimes we talk about, well, I talk about a lot with people is authenticity. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you really process yourself, if you really think about why do I do what I do, why do I like what I like, who am I, who am I becoming, uh, am I authentic, am I being real with myself and therefore can allow myself to be real with others, 
that's sort of a lifelong pursuit. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we find there are certain things we get tripped up on that we're having a hard time looking at. We, we really aren't authentic on, and that can cause a lot of distress inside. And I'm guessing, uh, and, and we see it here in, in Utah, and I think a lot of religious communities around the world uh, have the similar thing where a person's not fully well adjusted on a belief system, and so they feel caught in between. And that in and of itself can cause enough stress to have a person want to escape with substances. Yeah, I, I say that religious trauma is part of my story because of, you know, that confusion. And I left the church in high school and then my parents and siblings all got sealed together in the temple. And we know what that means in the temple, that they're together and I'm not. For, <laughs> and for, well, for listeners, a, a temple ceiling is sort of like when a couple get married or when a family gets sealed, uh, the, the, the LDS belief is that you'll be together for eternity. Mm-hmm. And so it, Minus Shay, apparently. Yeah. So okay. when they chose to do that without me, that was how did yeah tell me very traumatic. I didn't even realize how traumatic it was until I went to rehab in 2010. Um, you know, because you just buried it. Yeah, I was just like, okay. I mean, they're going to do that, and I'm I don't believe in the religion anymore anyway. So whatever, go do that thing. So but what really up. affected me was that they believed in the religion yeah. still, and that they still did that, and were willing to go on with that process without me. Without you, mm-hmm. that's interesting because that is such a core. Um, belief of of the Mormon church is that we live past this life and that we can follow certain rules and have certain ceremonies done to where we we're all together forever as a family. If people know anything about Mormons, one thing they usually know is family. That's the big focus. Um, Backing up just a tad, you said when you were 11, mom uh, stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. Did, did, did all of the drinking culture stop in your household at some point prior to them all going to the temple together? So the temple happened a bit later um, after I was graduated um, or at the end of high school for me. But, yeah, backing up a little bit, when I was around 11, I had something traumatic happen to me. I was sexually assaulted by a neighbor. Um, I held that in for a while. I did eventually tell my parents. They did handle it. That man went to jail. Um, but, you know, back in the day, they didn't really know how to handle the after effects of that. So I'm, I probably talked to someone one time and then it was kind of like – Let's just not talk about it. We've done what we can and we're, we're going to move on. Don't, you know. I think a lot of times, and this is no fault to parents, I think if anything, mental health, we need to do a better job of educating people on what to do. But I think we overemphasize the punishment part. Like, like okay, you know, this person's going to get caught. It's against the law. They're going to have a punishment, go to jail, whatever. And now we should all feel better. But the reality is it's not that simple, is it? Right. And so I buried that. You know, I thought if they're telling me to just that we're, we can move on now, I guess I believe them. They're my parents. Same with all sorts of things. So I I didn't drink through high school. I The rebels wouldn't have me. I wanted to be with the rebels, but they wouldn't have me. So. Why, do you think they, why do you think they didn't want you? You were hip, hip, sure. You know, but in Not high school, yet. I wasn't. I wasn't yeah. yet. I was shy girl in the corner. I, you know, growing up in this religion, I still was just kind of. I, I wasn't sure who I was. I wanted the fun, but I didn't I, – I, I'm not quite sure. So, but I'm actually very fortunate and I'm grateful to the friends that I have in high school that they didn't drink. I think it might have saved my life because if I had gone down the addiction path, that that might have been 
a harder path for me. I don't know. I can't really say. Well, but, your brain thanks you if you want to look at it from a yeah, brain exactly, development standpoint. Because exactly. your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 24 or 25. That's what he's talking about. The, yeah. Exactly. Right? And so the the longer you the closer you can get to your mid 20s before you start drinking or using other drugs, your brain thanks you. Yeah. So that's a good thing. So right. when did the first drink begin for Hip Hip Charade? Yeah, so what happened was I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. I needed to get out of my toxic home. My dad's addiction had you know spiraled from age about 12 on. And I had experienced a lot of um, parentification. My mom was handling my dad, and so I was kind of the, sec- the mom handling my younger siblings. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to get out. <laughs> I just wanted to get out however that was going to happen, and that was marriage for me, a young marriage at 19. Um and as soon as I got out, we started drinking right away, uh, me and my young husband. And he was your high school sweetheart. Did yes. he drink during high school also? Was he Nope, we didn't, partier? but it was something that we discussed. We just kind of knew yeah, we needed to say, be out from under happen? our parents' roofs to do it. Because we were, follow, we're rule we're followers, now. you know, but then once we were married, it was like, oh, I pay we for my own rules. bills. I can, I can So I'm curious, who was the first one that brought it up? Do you remember? Goodness. Like how that, me how, because how'd that get I, it's up? always been something that I wanted You're to do. You're curious about yeah, it, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I, that first sip, I mean, I could honestly say from the very first sip that I was like, this is it. What this was your first sip of? it for me. Jaeger and Kool-Aid. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, right? <laughs> wow. And that was the jam forever. Jaeger oh. and Kool-Aid. Yeah. Huh. Uh. I love it. That is... No one should love it. Those are two flavors that should not be married. I that think. is absolutely. What color Kool Aid? Like red, usually. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. I know. Uh. It's so bad. Like thinking of that, well, it turns my stomach. And so you say after the first. You know, sip, addiction has made people do some bad things before, but that might yeah, be right up there. Right? So after the first sip, you knew that was your jam. I felt a freedom that I had never felt. Like I had been let loose like I didn't care what people thought of me anymore all through school it was very much about what people thought about me you know um including my family and I just didn't care and um self-conscious like I could finally be outgoing and I could finally be with the popular crowd and um the life of the party yeah well hip hip charade just found freedom or as we're (laughs) gonna call her now the kool-aid kid we're gonna find out how her life goes on you're listening to project recovery right here on KSL Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott here, Dr. Matt Woolley, as always. And our guest today is Shay Mitchell. How are you? So good. So you just talked about uh, your first drink, which was Jägermeister and Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, classic. Yeah. Yum. Yeah. 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 That good old classic, <laughs> Jägermeister and Kool-Aid. But you said you had such a freeing feeling for the first time. You didn't care what people thought about you. Uh, you were living under your own roof, paying your own bills, feeling like a grown-up at the age of 19. That's right. I was free. So, yeah, so I but we've talked. We've we've had a lot of people from a psychologist's point of view. Uh, I think you probably just had a higher level of anxiety than the average person. Mm-hmm. Do you have anxiety that runs in your family? Like members of your family have different kinds of anxiety. Absolutely, I've had. I've been diagnosed with anxiety disorder. My dad has anxieties. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what a lot of people don't understand is that anxiety often is sort of a the tendency towards it is biologically inherited. And so it runs in families and people who kind of grow up feeling extra anxious, extra self-conscious, uh socially, you know, uncomfortable, 
uh, don't really know what it's like. They kind of feel like a kid looking through from the outside in through a window socially. And then when they smoke a joint or then when they have a drink and that goes or, you know, or take a pain pill that goes away. It's it's just it's a feeling that you just want to have back immediately. Right. It is. It was um, if I'm being honest with myself today, I I liked it a little too much from yeah. the very beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. the relief from that anxiety, people don't understand unless you've had anxiety. It is miserable and pervasive. And when you can get some relief from that, I totally get that why people want to chase that feeling again, getting rid of their anxiety. How was your husband's uh, first interaction with alcohol? So that my first husband um, in that young marriage was not the same as mine. You know, he kind of just handled it like any college age kid would. Mm-hmm. Um, and I over that two years for me, what would happen is I would get really crazy by the end of the night, like start out fine. And then past trauma would come up and I would just get really mean, mean. I would get um, cr- I would cry like hyperventilate and not really understand what was going on. And a lot of this was some of that past trauma from my childhood mm-hmm. popping up and he didn't know what to do with me. Emotional ability okay. all over the place. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Explain that. Cause I don't think we know what that means. Well, when, when your inhibitions are all gone and you have a lot of trauma from your past, your emotions can just sort of go. It's a free for all. Mm-hmm. And, and, and your thoughts and your emotions sort of trigger each other. And so you can be happy and then you can be really sad and then you can be scared and then you can be angry. And, and so that's a common experience for people that have a lot of unpacked trauma and issues from their past when they start to drink. The, they become labile or their emotions go all over the place. So you started down the road of partying. Mm-hmm. Does it escalate quick or do you do it kind of just on the weekend sporadic special occasions? Yeah, I mean, being married, we still had to be responsible, pay our bills and stuff. So it was pretty much weekends. Um, got a little bit more just kind of all over the place. But because I got so crazy, our that, that marriage ended pretty quickly after about two years. Mm-hmm. He just really didn't know what to do with me. So I moved back home and that really amplified my drinking because also divorce in my culture and our culture, how I was raised was shameful. Um, so I used alcohol to cope in that way as well. So now are you drinking at home with your parents? Yeah. So when I moved home, I laid down the law, man. I was like, if I'm going to move back home with you guys, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> and they're like, okay, whatever. You're you laughing know? because it yeah. sounds silly, it huh? Sounds silly when now. you move in with somebody, usually you don't get to dictate yeah, the yeah. terms. But you have were... the privilege of having <laughs> yeah. me in your home. Yeah, exactly. And they were kind of like, okay, Shay. But they're like, okay, pay us 100 bucks a month and you can not have a curfew or whatever, you know? Uh-huh. So I did that and I had a little mini fridge in my basement bedroom and had all my liquor in there and I got a waitressing job. Which was very pervasive for yeah. alcohol addiction. Uh-huh. Um, restaurants are a great place to go. <laughs> sleep all day, work all night, then party, then sleep all day cycle. You mm-hmm. know, for years. Um, but actually, not years for me. I, I met my next husband pretty quickly. My current husband that I'm still married to. Um, I actually met him a week after my divorce at the bottom of some stairs at a house party. So I didn't meet him. He met me. Mm. Picked me up from the bottom of those stairs. He um, met Hip Hip Charade. He met Hip Hip Charade. In fact, he said, you introduce yourself to everyone at the party except for me. And I was like, I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> I was like, what? And he did. But um, he did not know the depths of um, of my addiction. So I was 
really able to hide that from him in the beginning, even though that's how he met me. You know, we, we did normal dates after that. <laughs> so did you, was that a conscious decision? Were you like, I kind of like this guy, so I want to like dial it back so he doesn't quite see the, the, the crazy side of my drinking? Yeah, and that was like that for me with everyone. I hid it even from myself, I think, pretty well. I, I was really in denial about how much I was drinking. I just thought, I just need to feel good. I just need to feel like I can function, like I can talk to people, like I can But it was anything. a daily thing at this point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say I just need to feel good because I know in my act of addiction, I mean, that was the benchmark I was trying to hit on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, as my girlfriend would say, she's like, oh, you I overshot your window big time last <laughs> night. You know what I mean? And it seemed like I overshot the window quite a bit. But if I'm going to be honest with you, me going into a day was just trying to get to that good spot. Mm-hmm. It was never to be obliviated. Mm-hmm. It was never to be stumbling. It was never to be kind of slurry. You know what I mean? It was just to be good. But I was a horrible aim. Well, you're competitive, yeah. too. Yeah. So you always wanted to do more. Right? But when she said that, I get what you're saying. And and then every once in a while, Hip Hip Charay would show up and then you'd have to explain it to your fiance or your husband and go like, yeah, I, I don't know what happened. Blackouts times- happen more and more as time goes on and, you know, you don't really remember and you have to ask. And then I just stopped asking. Yeah. Yeah. And and, 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 and it becomes to be an embarrassment for you and the person you're with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, yep, it was one of those episodes and, you know, and you, you, it, 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 it's a horrible feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was hiding it pretty well, but I, I obviously wasn't. I mean, he, I was hiding it from him, but my family did know me better, you mm-hmm. know. And so eventually I got – I married my husband and about a year into our marriage, my sister who was maybe 13 or so at the time wrote me a letter. And she's like, I'm worried about you. Like you have a problem. And so I got I got called out for the first time. Like, OK, I'm not hiding it. As well as I thought I was, people see that there's something. What was your reaction to your little sister sending you a letter? Like that's pretty direct of her. It was really direct of her. She also grew up with our dad, so she knew, you know, kind of some of addiction, how that looked and stuff. Can I ask you an honest question? Yeah. Do you think it was your 13 year old sister's idea, or do you think somebody gave it to her? I think it was her idea. I think she's wise beyond her years, and that even makes it so much more powerful, right? So if you're a 13 year old out there and you are thinking you might need to write a letter to someone, might just be the eye opener they need. My daughter wrote a letter, and um, I mean it's it'll be forever a gift to me. And right. it was the most honest, real outlook of my alcoholic life. Mm-hmm. And so when she read that letter, to, you wrote read that letter. Mm-hmm. What did it do to you inside? Uh, it crushed me. And then I told my husband. I said, I guess I I think I need to go re- to rehab. We aren't even married a year. I we spent our one year anniversary on my break from rehab. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, I went to rehab, an inpatient rehab for ninety days. Um, you know, told him he was like, okay, you know, we figured it out. But I wasn't there yet. I mean, I I was saying I was an alcoholic because I was in rehab, and that's what they asked you to do. And um, I was just going to go to this rehab and learn how to drink better. That's what was in my idea idea that was in that was my plan you were gonna get the rules i'm not sure which rehab that is the one that advertises <laughs> come here we'll teach you to dream actually it's funny that you bring that up though because we talk about you know people and you know you have two years of sobriety you have four years of sobriety we talk about sobriety the reality is uh there are and and it was a little more popular back in the day there were programs that were the attempt was to teach people 
to drink socially and to moderate and manage their drinking. Obviously, if you, if a person needs a rehab, maybe that's not the best program for them. But I think that a lot of people, part of their denial is I'm just going to learn how to drink. Like I can get to that good spot. I'm never. I'm not going to overshoot my mark anymore. And so it sounds like you went in there. Did that make you more or less open to the the things they were doing at rehab? I'm an achiever, like at heart. That's my motivation. I like to succeed at stuff. So if I'm going to go into a rehab, I'm going to graduate. Like I'm going to succeed at it, you know, and I, I graduated and then I stayed sober to, you know, prove to people, look, like I can do this. I had a baby during that time. Um, so I stayed sober for almost two years. And then it was like, look, you guys, I've proven it. I went to th- through therapy. I graduated. I can drink now. And I, I think I convinced a lot of people that I could because also when you go that long, if you're going to go back to it, you're going to make damn sure that you don't mess up for as long as possible, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want – you want to be able to have your drink. You want to be able to have your substance. And so um, for a couple of years, I think I, I did okay. I, I managed however that might look. I would have bouts of sobriety when someone would be like, hey, are, you know – Maybe you should cut back a bit. Oh, I can. And I would do it for 30 days. But then um, I had my other, my second daughter. And I had some severe postpartum depression after her. I didn't really realize because I was also still drinking. I, I quit during that pregnancy but started up again right after I had her um, because I was coping with that. And I didn't know I didn't know I had it. And I was self-medicating with alcohol. And that made my mental health really really spiral at that time after that. Um, so in 2019, I got, I was suicidal really bad, almost daily. Um, how, how long after your, was it your second pregnancy where you mm-hmm. had the postpartum? Yep. So, so how, how long from delivery to suicidality was that? So she was born in 2015. So she was about four when she was I about was four. Yep. And this was a spiral from, from then all the way down to Had that. you ever heard of postpartum depression before? Yeah, I had. But because I had been drinking for so long, I just thought that it was drinking depression, mm. not postpartum The reason depression. I ask is because a lot of, uh, I mean, there's more of a campaign now to help uh, providers and women and, and families understand what postpartum depression is. Um, and there are other postpartum problems. Even psychosis can be a postpartum issue as a woman's body is trying to adjust to everything that's happened during and after the delivery of a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even as recently as 2015, the, the information wasn't readily available and there, wasn't a, there weren't a lot of good uh, treatment options. So I, yeah. I think that a lot of women, um, maybe still today, misunderstand what postpartum depression is and how serious it can be. It's debilitating. And when you're a new mom... You just want to take care of your kid, and so you'll do anything you can. And alcohol got me out of bed. I would wake up and be like, okay, I can, I can drink. I can go have a shot. Like, how sad is that? But that was what was my motivator because it was the only thing that gave me energy. It, it was the only thing getting me going. How bad did the drinking get? Bad. I was drinking – when it got to the suicidal ideations, I was drinking half a handle a day. And you are probably – Five foot nothing. Yeah. Under a hundred pounds. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a lot. That's well, it's a, it's a sad commentary on how, um, how much tolerance your body had built up. 
Yeah, and and that was over four years from that point, right? But yeah, one day I was passed out at noon. My husband just didn't know what to do with me anymore. So he called my sister and said, I need to take her to the hospital. And she took me to the ER and I told the nurses I wanted to die and they 5150'd me. And off to the behavioral health unit I went for 72 hours. So for for (laughs) people who are Van Halen fans Mm -hmm. and don't know what 5150 (laughs) means, other than Sammy Hagar's first Van Halen album, uh, is that's where you've been deemed to be a danger to yourself or others and therefore you're committed for a short period of time until you can be evaluated. Mm -hmm. So So that's pretty serious because that doesn't happen easily. Right. So I went in there. They started medicating me. Did they start detoxing you or did they just try to medicate you just to, I don't, I don't both. know. Both. Yeah. yeah, both. Get me stabilized, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the 72 hours, I was I was ready to be home. I was ready to be back in my bed. I you know, was like, okay, like I get it. It was bad. And I stayed sober for about four months. We made a move during that time. New environment change, right? Got through all the holidays. 2019 holidays, January 1st, New Year's 2020. I'm like, hey, this so, craziness of it. But that's the addict it. brain, right? That like, is the crazy it, it, of it. You, we yeah. lie to ourselves and convince ourselves that we can handle something. Like Even after handle. suicidal ideations, right. being admitted for 72 hours again. I'm like, hey, let's try again, though. Let me. I, I don't want to put your husband on the hot seat because he's not here. <laughs> he's, but but what did your husband say? With the drinking? At this point. You know, at this point, it's been so long for my my poor husband, right? He just – he doesn't know how to handle this. So he's like, if that's your choice, that's your choice. I get the sense that she's got a lot of energy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and he might feel like that sometimes, like, okay, <laughs> right? What, I mean, what, are like, gonna, what am I going to do? How, I can't stop you. Yeah, I'm very yeah, yeah. much – You're like a little I'm ball make of my own fire. Decisions and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I can imagine he's sort of like in containment mode back in those days. Kind Absolutely. of like, how do I handle Absolutely. this woman? Just trying to keep yeah. the fire from not getting too large. He's just trying to contain you. Yeah. And, and he, yeah. <laughs> so what happened? You said it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? Yeah, so or? New Year's Eve, uh-huh. drink, you know, awesome, great time, whatever. Was it though? Was <laughs> well, it? Well, I don't remember. I, I, I was walking out so easily by this point. Um. My tolerance, it, it, it's so weird how you think your tolerance is going to come back to you when you take a break for four months and it doesn't. No, you, that's why That's why a lot of people end up overdosing Right, because they'll take four months off and they'll come back and they'll want the same fix that they used to get high with mm-hmm. and the body has not The tolerance has to gone it. down. Yeah. yeah. And so they end up overdosing. Right. And so I, I drink how I drank before, you know, I, I tried not to, but my, the neural pathways in my brain already had that well coping, established. Me- coping yeah. mechanism down. It yeah. knew what to do with the alcohol. So COVID hit. Right. I was <laughs> going to say. Um, when the liquor stores were going to, we're talking about being shut down since here in Utah, we don't have liquor stores and grocery stores. I was a liquor drinker, not a beer drinker. And yeah. so I was fearful and I had my husband go get me 30, 40 bottles of rum and wow. those were gone real quick. So, that, you know, <laughs> 30, yeah, wow. <laughs> like I'm looking back of all the crazy stuff that happened during COVID. And, but that's and, one that happened where people started to panic and yeah. all of a sudden there was a rush on the liquor stores here. I didn't know there was a rush on liquor store. I knew we yeah. did a rush on toilet paper, uh, but I don't remember the rush on liquor store. But the lines was, around the liquor stores. Yeah, yeah. people mm-hmm. talked. Yeah. That, and so that your was husband went in about 40 bottles of uh, rum. Yeah. 
and they started they started eventually limiting right like sort of like Costco you can only get like one thing in toilet paper can I ask you something when you found out they were going to start limiting stuff was the first thing you thought liquor 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 for oh yeah because it's also dangerous to withdraw from, from liquor like you actually can die and I was at that physically addicted point. Okay, but this was yeah. so so January to uh, April, I guess is so kind fast, of when, right? Four months. Did did oh, did you just start drinking regularly again after that? My thirty fifth birthday is Mar- was March eighteenth, mm-hmm. and that was also the day that we had a big earthquake. Mm. And for some reason, from that day, it just kind of spiraled, and then the shutdown was like early April, and that you know from then on, I was just drinking daily just to cope. My kids were home, the pandemic, we were shut down. Everyone was drinking during the day, too. So it was justification for me, finally. Like, everyone else is doing it. People on Zoom are using their coffee yeah. mugs, but filling it up with uh, Everyone liquor, was joining yeah. me in what I'd always been yeah. doing. You're <laughs> so. like, finally, you're on the you're on the playbook. Yeah, absolutely. So you burned through 40 bottles pretty quick. And during that month, I landed in the ER a couple times from severe hangovers in the height of COVID, when you don't want to be at the hospital, especially, right. a, you know, an ER situation. But um, when you're that, that sick... That's so how it did, was. Did those 40 bottles go in a month? Yeah. Wow. That's more than a bottle a day. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. And so what ended up happening um, was I did, I had a three day bender, May 3rd, 4th, 5th for Cinco de Mayo, Cinco de Drinco, that's what I used <laughs> to call it. Um, and woke up sick as all get out on May 6th again. And I finally had this click. Like, holy crap, you are here. You have to go to the hospital again? Like, I can't. Someone else was like, I can't even believe you. Like, almost parenting me. Like, I cannot even believe that this has happened. Um, That was your internal voice? And that was my final, that was my acceptance. Like, okay, holy freaking crap, dude. I am an alcoholic. I, I admit it. Like, I'm yelling, you know, like, I admit it. Fine. I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm an alcoholic. And um, I'd been seeing a therapist after the behavioral health unit situation. And I was just like, I'm going to get honest with her. And she was, um, she specialized in, in substance abuse disorder. So that was really helpful. Um, but yeah, I got honest with her and I was just willing to do anything at that point. So what what did that consist of? Oh my gosh, so much stuff. So I got on medication. I got on the Vivitrol shot for cravings. For those who don't know, Vivitrol is a shot. You can take it in pill form or a shot. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it's once a month and it lessens the cravings of alcohol. And so much of the fact that if you actually drink on it, you will get a little sick. And there's been people who have powered through the Vivitrol shot and still drank and got drunk. Yeah. But hopefully there's enough of a barrier resistance that it makes you rethink. Vivitrol that- plus the right kind of support, mm-hmm. it can right. really be helpful. To yeah, people. so I got with a you know a psychologist and got on the right medication for anxiety, depression, anger, Those things, sleep. Yep. Mm-hmm. All of, I got on all of it. Um, and... I started talking to my therapist, honestly. I got into an IOP, intensive outpatient program, and I did that three hours a night, three nights a week for four months. So it was really good to be around those peers, have those assignments, you know, really dive into the disorder and what it was all about. Um, kind of got me on that path again. Was that community. big for you to connect with other people? That Because it sounds like a lot of the people in your life who drank weren't having the same experience you had. Like mm-hmm. both of your husbands sound like they could drink 
take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe your father would be an exception where he really did have a drinking problem, it sounds like, but your mom was able to just stop. And, mm-hmm. you know, so was it, what was that like for you to be able to sit around for three hours a night with people that could truly relate to your experience? Um, it's just finally that acceptance or, or that understanding, you know, that someone understands the same the same feelings that you have, those same thoughts that you have. Because when you're not someone that has addiction issues, it's just really hard to relate to that. And mm-hmm. so it's nice to have a connection with someone that gets you. That gets it. Yeah. So you're doing an IOP, you're on Vivitrol, you're being honest with your therapist. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? I mean, do you go back and relive the trauma? Uh, I mean, you had religious trauma, you had sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you finally unpack that baggage with this therapist? I did. And I still see this therapist to this day once a month. But when I was first seeing her, we were talking twice a week, you know, um, because I had a lot to unpack. I had a lot of that past stuff I really needed to get through. And I needed to learn how to cope in healthier ways. And I needed to learn how to feel things that I had just numbed for a really long time. Numbed so, or ran away from. Absolutely. Yep. So... You kind of just a la carte your own recovery. A little bit. Kind of took a little bit of everything. I did AA too. Like I said, though, we were in COVID, so people weren't meeting as much. But my community had an outside meeting, and that was good to just see the people in my immediate local area too that were doing it. Not just the people on Zoom for the IOP, but actual face-to-face connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that you know, every day for the first five months too, and that, that was helpful. Uh, you've talked about your beautiful daughters a couple of times. Um, did they see the ugliness of your addiction? Absolutely. Uh, my oldest, you know, definitely saw the ugly part of it more, the, the screaming, the passing out. She was eight when I got sober, so not too old. I feel really fortunate that they were as young as they were. Um, but, yeah, she, now I cuddle every night. <laughs> and before I didn't, I just want to put them to bed. So I could have a drink. And now I'm like, are we going to snuggle? Can we read a book and snuggle? And I even asked my six-year-old, I said, do you remember like a time when we didn't snuggle? And she's like, yeah, right. Like, that's your favorite thing. Like, yeah, you know, no way, you know, so total 180. That's amazing. So good. And uh, how's the relationship with your family? You know, my same thing, 180. My mom doesn't drink. My I have two sisters that can also drink normal. My brother is um, still LDS and he doesn't drink. He's never had, we found out just the other day he's never drank. I was like, wow, good for you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, cool. cool. Uh, like, yeah. He's the outlier. It's, yeah. it's great. So I'm really, really fortunate to have a lot of fantastic support around me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. You, you've, you you piece together your recovery. Mm-hmm. You find all the right people to help you in it, uh, from therapists to medicine to uh, IOPs to groups. Uh, and then you slowly start to gain the trust back of your husband. Did, mm-hmm. did, did, did he lose pretty bad trust in you? Yeah, I don't think that he even realized how much trust he lost until just this last couple months ago. He was able to go on a trip with his buddies. That's the first time he's ever left me alone with our children for more than one night. Wow. Ever. And it was just kind of like, wow, you know. Was he nervous? No. Okay. No, not not at all. But it took a couple of years. It took a couple of years. Yeah. And it was so funny because 
even the girls were like, we keep on forgetting that dad's not here. I'm like, you got this handled. <laughs> you know, like it's, and I couldn't have done that in the past. Let me ask you a, sort of a, a tougher question. Oh, yeah. here it comes. Love it. So <laughs> you've had periods of sobriety before. And now you've been sober for a couple of years. Uh, this sobriety, granted, looks way different than anything you did before. You're very active. And I I hope people are listening to the fact that, you you know, it takes a little bit of work, but you can do it. Mm-hmm. What's going to what is going to be different about this now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, why what's going to stop you from going back to drinking? And to be honest, that can't be the first time you've been asked this question. Right. Right. You know, I mean, right. What's different this time? Why? Why is this different? Yeah. Um, well, every other time I would say I was doing it for someone else and to prove that I did not have a problem. This time I'm doing it for me and I accept that I do have a problem. Perfect answer. Mic drop, right? <laughs> a plus. Yeah. Well, and, and I think in within what you just said um, is is you decide there was a decision to be honest with your therapist, which might have not seemed like the most important part of what you just said. But to me it was because when a person decides I'm actually going to be honest about this and they tell somebody else who is in a position to hold them accountable and help them, that is honestly a turning point. And so, like mm-hmm. you said, this is for you mm-hmm. um, and and that's the difference. So, and know. now I, being in it for as long as I have, I can see the beautiful life it provides. There was – Something about sobriety that I feared, I feared no excitement, no fun. Uh, Life was going to be boring, that I wouldn't have any friends, that I couldn't go on vacation, that I couldn't go to a concert. I mean, all these things. The life would be dull and what's the point of doing that? No, I could do them sober. Yeah. And now I love to do them sober. I'm there for it. I'm present. I get to remember it. I'm engaged with my kids and seeing them have fun, not like worried about getting my next drink to drown out the noise yeah yeah so then how does the uh instagram page come about (laughs) good question i started a business also when i got sober because i needed to fill my time when uh (laughs) if you're like me i just drink to fill time too so started a spray tanning business and i was doing um Instagram for that, learning how to create graphics and stuff. And I really enjoyed that, that creative process using my brain and posting like that. And I was like, hey, this might be a really good accountability for my sobriety, for my recovery. I don't really want to do AA forever. Like that's not my jam forever. I don't want to have to be at this place for an hour every day, but I'd like to have a daily reprieve somehow. So I thought I'm going to see if sober Instagram will work. And I just started and about 120-something days sober, I started posting, and I just started telling my story and saying, you know, this is where I've been. This is where I'm at. If you relate, say, hey, um, love to connect. Because I did find, you know, like in the IOP, you were saying those connections were really important to my recovery as well. And so adding the sober Instagram just kind of expanded on that. So what is your Instagram handle? Shay Sober, S-H-A-Y, Sober. And uh, currently, she's got a little over 16,000 followers, uh, and so much the fact that it's turned into a little bit of a moneymaker. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I know that's not the reason you're <laughs> yeah. doing it, but it's got to give you... But what does that tell you, Casey? So so, so all of a sudden, it's become very popular. What does that tell you? She's, she's connecting. Yeah, and that there are a lot of people that, just like Shay, just like you, that connection, what do we say? What's the opposite of uh, addiction? 
it's connection. Connection, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not, oh, yeah, she knows it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's not sobriety per se, it's connection, right? Yeah. That's the opposite. And so I'm not surprised with your vivacious, fun, energetic personality that people have gra- gravitated to you for that, but also because people want that connection. They want to feel somebody gets me, somebody understands me. And if you can, you know, provide that in a fun, energetic way, like, my pal C money over here does. <laughs> um, you two are cut, cut from the same cloth. Um, I'm not surprised, and I think it'll probably just continue to, to expand and grow. Thank you. Yeah, and I enjoy doing it. So if you can make money at something you enjoy doing, why not? Right. <laughs> That's the dream. So what's next for Shay? Okay, so I just um, – I enjoyed doing the Instagram so much. I had so many people reaching out to me, you know, saying that it helped, um, asking for things I did, asking for help, advice, whatever, um, that I wanted to expand on that. So I just uh, finished the CPSS training through the state of Utah, which is the Certified Peer Support Specialist Program, Mm -hmm. um, in essence, recovery coaching certification. Um, so yeah, I just got that certificate and I'm hoping to kind of move into recovery coaching and mentorship and support for others that are on this path and just wanting to get healthy. Can we take a second just to talk about, and I've never even met the man, how amazing your husband is. Can we? He's, he's honestly the best, like 13 years. Yeah. And the roller coaster, the roller coaster ride you took him on. (sighs) Yeah. Yep. And so for others are out there who might be in love with an addict or, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, w- we do, we do recover. We can recover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, what did, I mean, this is a dumb question sort of, cause it's so broad, but what's something that he did that, uh, helped you get to where you're at? He stopped enabling and he stopped trying to fix me that oh, at the end, awesome. that was really it. He needed to stop trying to fix me. I bet me. that was scary for him. I bet it was so scary for him. And oh. we talk about it a little bit now. He's starting to open up about it. But, mm. yeah, when when you don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and yeah. you know what? Let's be honest. Successful people are fixers. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to fix things. There's a problem. We're going to fix it. And what's more important than your spouse? Probably nothing. And so he wanted to fix you. And when he he had to give up and let go of that in order to give you the space it's very interesting. And my personality, that was really important, too, because I'm kind of the type of person that if someone holds on, I feel a little suffocated and like I have to prove them wrong. So as long as he was holding on trying to fix me, I was adversely saying, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. I'm not broken. As soon as he let go and was like, I'm just going to let you kill yourself with alcohol if that's what it's going to be then. Like, go ahead. Fine. Do it. I was like, well, maybe I should look at this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? He let go, and I was, and then I was able to say, and then I was able to dive deep and so look that, inside. It's that so, resistance went away, and the oppositional yeah. feeling went away, and yeah. you were just stuck dealing with yourself. But I think that's scary. I think that's why so many family members have a hard time not enabling mm-hmm. and not trying to control and fix the addict because we love them and we want them to get better. But you're right; that's that's an awesome response that you had to that. Well, I can tell you this. It's been just so much fun having you sit down and tell your story. Thank you. It's Dr. Matt, any last thoughts? 
Well, I rudely picked up my phone while we were talking, and I started following Shay Sober on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> so thanks. you should go follow Shay Sober yeah, on Instagram. I'm excited. I, I'm excited. I want more of this energy in my regular life. Ah, uh, that's you know, so, so kind. I can pick get it from Instagram. I love it. So thank you very much for stopping by today. Thank you guys so much. This has been so fun. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. Hip hip. Sure. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.